it looks like I seem to have started something here. Uh, the show on the 8th, where I talked about this Texas appeal, and then the show yesterday, where I expanded on that, seems to have started a firestorm. My email box overflowing with people asking me questions about what exactly is going on here. And I'm afraid that I have to report that things haven't got any less confusing in the intervening 24 hours that have elapsed since yesterday's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so by going either to the iTunes App Store or the Google Podcast Store or Play Store, uh, and you can subscribe to the show that way. If you have, for some reason, difficulty in succeeding in doing that in either place, you can always download the free Podbean app in either place, the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. Podbean.com is a hosting service that myself and many other podcasters use, and that their app works very well, and you can subscribe that way, and it's also free of charge. If you'd like to help us promote the show, please, by all means, leave us a review in either the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store. And if you're one of those people who listen on Podbean, you know, leave a comment or two there, write a review. But it would really help us if you left us a review in either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. That would really help to explode the show. Okay, but right now, we have um, quite a few breaking things. So I want to clarify a few things. If you recall, I explained how that when the Supreme Court turned down that Pennsylvania case, that it wasn't really a bad thing, especially within a few hours they picked up the Texas case. The Supreme Court does not like to get involved in trivial matters, and by that I mean matters that, after they decide, have no real impact. I'm not saying that overturning a state election is a trivial matter, but if they only address Pennsylvania, it wouldn't have any determination on the outcome. It wouldn't do anything. Instead, they've picked this case because this case, this Texas case, as I said before, involves an issue of federal law. There is an elections clause in the Constitution which proscribes that any changes to the election laws in the states or the manner in which the elections are conducted must be effectuated by the state legislature and cannot be done by either the governor or the secretary of state or some other bureaucrat. It can't simply be done by an executive fiat. It has to be done by the legislature, presumably after spirited and uh, considerable debate. That wasn't done in any of the four states, which in and of itself is rather suspicious. Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Supreme Court is now going to hear that case. The case is docketed. The defendant uh, states were to have their response briefs to the court by 3 p.m. yesterday. 18 other states, 17 signed on with the um, state of Texas and Arizona, the 18th state, filed its own brief. And six of the states petitioned to be, to be allowed to have their attorney generals also argue before the court, not because they had any lack of faith in the state of Texas to argue it, because they wanted their constituents represented as well. And the core argument here is that since these four states made changes to their election laws and the way that elections are conducted uh, using different standards, um, that this caused a host of problems. And these problems have cast into great doubt the validity of the votes in those states. And that by doing so, they have diluted 
the effect of the votes in the states that are bringing the suit. So this is a very interesting argument because it isn't like the state house is suing their own state before the Supreme Court. I'm not so sure it would be easy to get there. Uh, but even if that would have happened, I could see the Supreme Court saying something to the state legislature in, in one of any one of the defendant states that, look, yeah, we realize that the, um, the governor or the secretary of state changed the laws, but you folks had the opportunity to do something about it and you didn't. You can't come to us now and ask us to do that. But that's not the question here. The state of Texas has no leverage over the legislatures or the governors in other states. They can only go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, as we discussed the other day, is the court of original jurisdiction to settle disputes between the states, and that's what they are doing. Now we have a total of 19 states, including Texas, that are bringing suit against the four defendant states. In addition to that, we have the fact that two of the state houses from the defendant states, the state house of Georgia and the state house of Pennsylvania, have filed amicus briefs in support of the Texas state's suit against their states. That's got to be very, very compelling. Now, what happens depending how the court rules? That's what everybody's asking. And I was pretty sure I made this clear in no uncertain terms, but I'm going to do it again and maybe expand a little bit on it. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of Texas and the other plaintiff states that the state the defendant states, Georgia, PA, Michigan, and Wisconsin, violated the U.S. Constitution by the manner in which they changed the election laws and thereby casting the validity of those uh, elections in doubt. Then I would say that this uh, whole matter is effectively over because those votes could not be counted. The Supreme Court does not have the power this is important, to automatically grant those electoral votes to President Trump. This is important to understand. They just can't say, well, we think this was funny business. We're going to grant all of those electoral votes to Trump. That's going to push him over 270, and he's president. No, it's not going to work that way. The Supreme Court can only invalidate it. It can't simply assign those electoral votes. What would happen then is that the Constitution would take over, and the Constitution proscribes that in this case, if no candidate gets 270 electoral votes, that the House of Representatives then chooses the president. And that is done by a, a vote of the states, one vote from each state, not a vote from each congressional representative, not 435 congressmen and congresswomen making, casting votes. One state. And the way the state votes are cast is generally in keeping with who controls the state legislature. Now, in 27 of the 50 states, the legislature is controlled by the Republicans. In 21 of the states, the legislatures are controlled by the Democrats. Okay? So that brings us to 48. In the other two states, the legislatures are effectively split. So if everything shakes out according to party lines, it's clear that Donald Trump would be made the president. I'm sure we covered that the other day. But now what happens if the Supreme Court doesn't do that? What if they, they punt? What if they say, yep, we think that the Constitution was violated, but, you know, we really can't say whether there was any consequence of that that harmed anyone, and so we're going to punt on this, and we're going to do nothing. 
I really don't see him saying that. It's, 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 you can't get inside the head of a justice, but this is what you have to look at. It's like I said the other day. I can't see a lot of deliberation being required here. In fact, I would venture to say that based on their judicial philosophies, all of these judges are already pre-committed on the idea of whether or not the type of action undertaken by the four defendant states violates or does not violate the United States Constitution. I mean, you've got to, you've got to know. Either you feel it, it did or it didn't. It's really not a very, very deep thing. Now, if you, they all say it didn't, which I think would be ridiculous, then there's not much else to be done. I can't see them saying, well, it did, but uh, there's no sanction for that, nothing we can do. I can't see it. I see them more, more than likely outcome saying that it did violate the Constitution, and therefore these elections are null and void. Nobody gets to 270, we go to the House. But what happens if the Supreme Court does, for some reason, elect to do the other two alternatives I just mentioned. Say it violated it, but nothing to be done here. Or go the other way altogether and say, eh, nothing to see here, it didn't violate the Constitution. Strangely enough, if they rule that way, even though if they ruled in favor of Texas, the case is effectively over and the House will decide the presidency, if they rule against Texas and the other states, things are not over for a very, very fine point of the law. Yes, the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, but it cannot overrule a state court with respect to its own constitution, its own laws. It's a common misconception among litigants that federal courts can revisit and perhaps overturn a decision of the state courts. They can only do that if a federal issue was part of a state court decision. Then the federal court can review the decision by the state court. Now, if the Supreme Court says there's no federal issue here, that does not mean this is over, because we have a lot of things happening in the states. We have a forensic audit of 22 Dominion voting machines taking place in the state of Michigan. If that audit reveals that there was fraud there, the Michigan State House is going to be hard-pressed not to do something about it. The Michigan Supreme Court would be hard-pressed not to do something about it. Now, Pennsylvania seems to be trying to walk away from this, but Michigan holds 16 votes. In Georgia, they saw that film. They heard that tape of Ralph Jones. They know that vote ballot harvesting was engaged in. They know that ballots were taken out of suitcases and counted by four hand-picked people after everyone else was sent home. The Georgia State House knows there's fraud there. That's 16 electoral votes. So even if the Supreme Court rules against Texas, it is still within the power of those state legislatures to say, we're going to take this bull by the horns and we're going to seat new electors. So that's 32 votes. Arizona is hot and heavy about seating new electors. That's 11 votes. 32 and 11 is 43. 43 into 232 that Trump already has puts him at 275. He's president. That's big. I got news for you. If Arizona is not successful, there's another route. Trump still has a very viable lawsuit in Nevada where they can demonstrate that 40 to 60,000 people double voted. Those votes get, count, get counted out. And the margin of victory is only 12,000. 
Trump would carry Nevada, which would give him a 270, even if he doesn't get Arizona, and he's still president. So far from this thing being over, uh, I mean, I know it's always a heavy lift when you're coming behind. If you want to talk about a football game, it's the fourth quarter. We're down to almost a two-minute warning. The opposing team is ahead, the visiting team, but the home team is driving, and Tom Brady's at quarterback. And the momentum is with them. Let's put it in perspective, in a sports analogy. That's where we are right now. So this thing is far from over. In fact, we have some stories here on the, the Gateway Pundit, which is a, a website that some people will say is you know pro-right, whatever. But they seem to be always ahead of the curve, and they, they break a lot of news that subsequently gets picked up by other sites. They have a breaking news exclusive dated today written by Joe Hoft. He's the brother of the founder of the Gateway Pundit. It was published today about noon. An audit of digitally, educated ball- uh, digitally adjudicated ballots would easily place Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, and probably Michigan in the Trump column. Now, Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, let's just count that up. You got 16, 11, 27, 37. Uh, that wouldn't be enough, but it's certainly closing the gap. And we still have that Nevada lawsuit alive and well. But Michigan jumps in, then everything changes. Says there may be enough ballots adjudicated illegally in this year's election to move Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan to the Trump column. Enough states for Trump to win the election. Now listen to this. The process of curing and adjudicating ballots during an election takes time. Individuals mailing in ballots with issues must be contacted and certain steps must take place. We noted this previously where our focus was on Georgia. Now, in a post on November 9th, the Gateway Pundit wrote this. This is current information, but here's what they wrote on November 9th. In Georgia, the deadline for receipt of absentee ballots in Georgia per Georgia election law is no later than the close of polls on election day. Ballots received after the polls close cannot be counted. This per the Georgia Secretary of State Elections Division. Absentee voting guide for registered voters. Now, this deadline was affirmed by an October, in October 2nd federal appeals court ruling, which stayed a lower court ruling from August 31st, stemming from a lawsuit brought by the leftist nonprofit New Georgia Project, founded by Georgia Democrat activist and failed gubernatorial candidate who still thinks she won, Stacey Abrams. Their lawsuit prevailed in extending the Georgia mail-in ballot receipt deadline for an additional three days. However, on an appeal brought by the state of Georgia, Georgia election law held firm, with the higher court decisively reestablishing the deadline in the 2020 election as November 3rd at the close of the polls. Got me? So by hook or by crook, any ballot that came into Georgia after the closing of the polls on November 3rd are null and void. But they ignored Georgia law. Starting on November 4th at 2 p.m., the day after the election, and ending on November 6th at 5 p.m., more than three days after the election, Eastern Standard Time, the Georgia Democratic Party began the deployment of trained teams of volunteer activist operatives called ballot rescue teams to do phone banking and also travel Georgia's counties knocking on people's front doors, but only Democrats' front doors, and cheerfully offering to help cure or fix absentee and mail-in ballots 
which allegedly had problems and were allegedly not being counted by the county registrars. This is illegal. Now, there was a video that uh, the Gateway Pundit posted. You can go to their site and look at it. I can't obviously put it into my uh, podcast. But in the video, Mr. Jones, that was the one that was uh, Ralph Jones, was caught on video talking about how they were in advance, how they were going to stop counting at 11 o'clock. That audio came out a day or two after the Giuliani team brought the video of the women taking the ballots out from under the black table and counting them after everyone had been chased out of the building, news agencies included. Now, in a video the Gateway Pundit has posted, Mr. Jones admitted that they were doing ballot curing. We believe Georgia election law only allows ballot curing if the voter gets a call or a contact from a Georgia election official. The law doesn't allow a a campaign operative to replace the election official's position. We don't believe, or a party um, official, we don't believe Georgia election law allows electronic curing of the ballot either, which is what the Democrat ballot curing program did. They stated that the voter could email or text their ballot changes. Now, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that almost anyone can get access to somebody's email, that it can be hacked. Same thing with a text message on a phone. You have no idea whether somebody sent it or somebody picked up the phone and did it. It can't be electronically cured. And any ballots like that are null and void. Thousands of ballots in Georgia were likely adjudicated electronically without underlying support to properly cure the ballot. And they say the Gateway Pundit goes on to quote that Ralph Jones Sr. probably knows who was involved. In Arizona, this, this the Arizona, the um, Gateway Pundit is reporting from an interview that Greg Kelly conducted with Arizona Republican Chair Kelly Ward, who made the following statements about adjudicated ballots there. There are over 1.9 million early ballots, absentee ballots. 28,000 of them are duplicated. Over 200,000 of them were digitally adjudicated. We have not been able to look at one ballot, not one, that was digitally adjudicated. So how do you know? How do you certify an election when 200,000 ballots are in doubt in a state with a margin is about 12,000? In Wisconsin, before the election commission recommended an illegal remedy on absentee ballots, as the Gateway Pundit pointed out, It says, we are also aware of thousands of ballots reported in Dane County alone where ballots were handed in in pristine condition, meaning they can't be in pristine condition if they're a real ballot because the ballot in full, in full size unfolded is too big to fit in the envelope. It has to be folded to fit into an envelope. If it has no crease in it, it was never put in an envelope. If it was never put in an envelope, it was never lawfully returned. How many of these required to be cured and how many were electronically adjudicated illegally? In Michigan, they also know ballots coming in in pristine condition. How many of these were digitally adjudicated? Then they also have another related story. We talked about that the other day, about truckloads of ballots uh, coming in from New York going to Pennsylvania. I still like to know how ballots from Pennsylvania wound up in New York in the first place, unless some questionable people were just manufacturing them in an apartment there and then bringing them to Pennsylvania to be counted. You get the picture. There's too much funny business going on. And quite frankly, I think if the Supreme Court punts on this issue and does anything other 
then rule that the Constitution was violated and disallow those four states from certifying, it will be a, a tremendous stain on the court. I think, I think everyone, when you've when you got a state, when you've got a state of affairs where the people in, in, the, in the country believe that the election was stolen, a substantial number of them, then you have a serious problem with public confidence, and you can't allow that to be eroded. Now, Fox News, which has actually gone off the deep end, they take a poll, and it says most Republicans say President Trump was robbed. But even here, this is the mainstream media trying to skew things and telling you things are not what you know they are, what you can see with your own eyes. 68% of Republicans believe the election was stolen from Trump. Among Trump voters, 77% think he actually won. And so do 26% of independents and even 10% of Democrats. That's according to the latest Fox News National Survey. Overall, 36% of voters say the election was stolen from Trump, while 58% disagree. Now, how does that follow? How do 68% of Republicans think that, Trump, that the election was stolen from Trump? 10% of Democrats think it was stolen from Trump. And 26% of independents think it was stolen from Trump. And all of that only adds up to 36% of all voters. Something is not right here. This is the reason why public opinion hasn't moved faster than it otherwise would have, because the mainstream media outlets are doing everything they can to suppress this sort of news. They're not reporting news. They are shaping news by shaping public opinion with falsehoods or half-truths, which is another technique. They also want to give you a poll that 56% to 36% think Trump is weakening rather than strengthening American democracy. Uh, I, I really don't buy that poll. Uh, I, Fox News, I've already told you, they've left the reservation. I, I don't buy that poll. And quite frankly, I don't see how anyone could say that by using every tool that's available to a candidate under our democracy that we're undermining the uh, American democracy. Would you not say it's true that if these things are true, and there's been more than ample evidence to indicate that they are true, that that's undermining our democracy? How can we ever trust an election again? Not being able to trust a future election is undermining democracy. Not President Trump availing himself of all of his, of his rights. If President Trump legitimately thought that he lost, because there's still been no explanation given for how all four of these defendant states, at the same time, with the same percentage of votes counted, all simultaneously stopped counting. And all of a sudden, these avalanches of ballots came from apparently nowhere, like manna from heaven, all for Joe Biden with no down-ballot race check. No one's come up with an adequate explanation for this. The only logical explanation is fraud. There is no reasonable alternative explanation. I told you what that mathematician said that was hired by Patrick Byrne, founder of Overstock. To have 10, even in a, in a precinct that was 94% Biden, to have 10,000 ballots in a row come in for Biden without a single Trump ballot in the mix is statistically impossible. It can't be done. Now, 85% of those believing Trump was robbed want to see him run again. And you're trying to tell me that all these people are out there saying this is undermining democracy. This is what I mean. If you're getting dubious polls like this from Fox News, who can you trust? You can't trust anyone. So that's what we're up against right now, ladies and gentlemen. But a few other little tidbits of information before we sign off 
for the weekend, and we'll be back at this on Monday. Do you remember that uh, that lovely couple in Missouri who decided to defend themselves against a mob that had broken into a gated community um, in an effort to protest in front of the mayor, the mayor's house there, the McCluskeys, and they were indicted by that racist Missouri prosecutor, Kim Gardner, who called them defending their home uh, with guns, which they didn't point at anybody and they didn't fire at anybody, subjecting peaceful protesters to a vicious assault. These peaceful protesters kicked down the gate of a gated community, and they were on their way to break into these people's homes. What are they supposed to do, sit there with their phones and videotape them robbing, and maybe the police might check after them? Well, apparently, Kim Gardner used her persecution of the McCluskeys as a campaign fundraising tool, and that is expressly prohibited by Missouri law. So a circuit judge in Missouri has now removed Kim Gardner from the case. And the case itself was a foolhardy effort on her part. The president came out against her for doing it, came out in support of the McCluskeys, and the governor of the state of Missouri made it plain that if anything happened to the McCluskeys, he was already going to grant them a full pardon. So what the hell are we wasting taxpayers' money for? But that seems to be what these leftist lunatics want to do. And if things didn't get any worse, or if you didn't believe they could get any worse here in New York, uh, Il Duce, Benito Cuomo, uh, is once again trying to bankrupt anyone who managed to survive his first lockdown. Commencing Monday, that would be December 14th, is it? Today's the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, yes. Commencing Monday, December 14th, Governor Cuomo is shutting down all indoor dining in the entire city of New York. It's only a matter of time before he moves to the outer boroughs. And then at the same time, last night he sends out a message saying that he's going to have to raise taxes because he can't cover the budget shortfall. Let me give you a little little hint, uh, Governor. As you, as you drive more and more people with money out of your state, you have fewer and fewer people left that you can tax. So what happens is you have to start taxing the people that you do have even more, particularly since you don't want to cut any services, and particularly since you don't want to lay off any union employees who fill your Democratic coffers. You just want to lay off people who are running businesses, but not a single state employee, local or government municipal employees felt the heat. They're all getting paid, including yourself, who gave yourself a substantial raise from that tax base that you no longer have. So just continue on your current path, and pretty soon you'll have about five people left in the state who actually work for a living, and you'll have to tax all of them to pay for the welfare from all of the illegals that Joe Biden wants to bring into the country. God forbid he gets reelected. So think about that, you schmuck. Talk about Fredo. I don't know who's dumber, you or your brother. I tell you, if you had a contest, I don't think either one of you would win. If they had a contest for the smartest Cuomo, nobody would win. The only guy that was bright, even though I thought he was liberal, was your father, and he's dead. And uh, for those of you who like conspiracy theories, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I thought I'd share this with you. And this is a fact. There's been a massive military deployment 
in recent days. Two aircraft carrier groups have been deployed by the President to the west coast of the United States, three carrier groups to the east coast of the United States. Incredible amounts of men and material have been flown in to Nellis Air Base in Nevada, and there have been many explanations being floated for this. One of the wackiest, which I can't believe, is that um, this is being done because um, the Democrats, if the Supreme Court should act in such a manner that allows President Trump to remain president, uh, plan on going to the United Nations, asking them to invade the continental United States and depose Trump as, a, as an unlawful dictator. The problem with that is, of course, that the United Nations has no army, navy, or air force, and really can't do anything. They have to do everything with the cooperation of the member states. And I don't think I see any of the European countries or our allies coming here. About the only people that might do it are the Russians and China. I don't see the Russians doing it, uh, and I don't see the Chinese wanting to do it right now, because right now, with Trump president and in the aftermath of his four-year buildup, the American military is as strong as it, as it has been in some time. So this is not the appropriate time for a conflict. But the British government is saying they're tracking the entire northern Russian fleet, which they say is on maneuvers in the Atlantic so they can speed to the United States more quickly. Take that for what it's worth. The other alternative explanation is that Trump is deploying these men and materiel uh, on those coasts because if he does prevail and remains president. The story goes that the states of California, Oregon, and Washington, which is essentially the entire western seacoast of the United States, and New York plan on seceding from the Union, and he will need by force of arms to bring them back in line. Both of those things are a little bit far-fetched to me, but what is not far-fetched and what is true, so I report it to you, is the deployment of those ships and carrier groups and those men and materiel. And I leave it to you to make of it what you will. Have a nice weekend. We'll see you Monday for National Preview Online. I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>